please stand if you are able for a reading from God's holy word. Today's scripture reading is from Zechariah 9, 9 through 12. Please read with me the verses in bold. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bows shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Good to see all of you this morning. My name is Daniel, one of the pastors here. Uh, thanks for joining us here this morning on this Palm Sunday. Uh, if I could just add to that announcement that, that Brad gave about uh, the, the grill team, we're looking particularly for chicken. So if you can do chicken, uh, if you can do just like 12 pieces of chicken, uh, we're looking for two to four volunteers or so. And so again, if you would, uh, come talk to me afterwards or come talk to Pyong afterwards, and we'd be glad to have you uh, share in that responsibility together. Uh, our text this morning tells us that a king is coming. To give you a little bit of context, the people of Israel have been living under exile, under captivity, under the Babylonians. But by decree of the new king, the decree of Cyrus, the king of Persia, the people are granted permission to return from captivity back to their homeland, particularly to rebuild the temple that King Solomon built. For the people of Israel, you can imagine there were many obstacles in their attempts to rebuild and great dismay among the people as they head back to their homeland. In the previous eight verses of chapter 9, there's a pronouncement of judgment on all the neighbors of Israel, particularly Tyre and, and Sidon and the, the, Philist, uh, the Philistines uh, and, and a few other places as well. But the great king will come to conquer these lands, the text tells us. And many believe that this prophecy is fulfilled uh, 200 years later when Alexander the Great, you may know him, comes in and conquers uh, as far north as Macedonia and as far south as, as Egypt, as far east as Greece and as far west, I'm sorry, as far west as, as Greece and as far east as uh, some of the parts of India, uh, Alexander Great, he conquers these, these massive lands. And so you see a, a prophetic word in 500-something B.C., and by 300, those lands are conquered. Now, Alexander the Great, according to the History Channel, that's my resource here, <laughs> in 336 B.C., uh, Alexander's father, Philip, was assassinated by his bodyguards. And so just 20 years old, Alexander the Great uh, claimed the Macedonian throne, and killed his rivals before they could challenge his sovereignty. The same sources described him as both, uh, uh, both charismatic and ruthless. He's brilliant, and yet 
power hungry. He's diplomatic and bloodthirsty. Although he was king for less than 13 years, he serves as one of the world's greatest military generals in history who ruled over a vast empire. So the news that a king is coming is not necessarily a cause for great joy. It all depends on who it is. Often there's great uncertainty, fear, and concern over what might happen to her subjects when the king comes and begins his rule. Oftentimes in the ancient world, the news of a foreign king or ruler taking over, and, uh, taking over a nation would strike fear in the hearts of those in his path. He would slaughter men in the city and sell the women and children to slavery. He was not concerned about the well-being of his subjects but only of his own power and dominion. In the days of absolute monarchs, kings often used their power for their own benefit. And so can you imagine how the ancient world felt when news about Alexander the Great spread during that time? When a new regime takes over the Oval Office, oftentimes there's wholesale changes, changes to policies and laws. There's new cabinet members, there's new agendas. You know, and all of us can agree that uh, in some way or form, we can all accept some governmental interference, right? Some, to a limited degree, uh, but as long as it doesn't get too close or hit too close to home or maybe even too close to our wallets, we're okay with the government. The same is true when there's a new boss over a company or when a new manager takes charge, I guess, depending on where you are on the organizational chart, there may be greater fear or anxiety because whenever there's a change, most of us ask the question, how does this affect me? So the news of a king, that a king is coming, is not necessarily good news, not welcome news, not for a nation that has had her fair share of bad and evil kings. And you may know the history of Israel, the kings of the north, and the kings of the south, most of them were, were wicked and evil. There were a few good kings kind of in the mix in the southern kingdom, but overall there were not kings who followed the, the heart of God. A king is coming. A new king, a new president, a new boss or manager, one who wants too much control we prefer not to have. They want authority and jurisdiction over all or too many parts or aspects of our life and uh, areas, how, uh, areas of our business or how we relate with others, including our family, or perhaps how we think or speak. If you're like me, we, res we resist that very thought. We would certainly not rejoice in the news of the coming of that kind of leader. And yet, regarding this king, Zechariah exhorts, rejoice greatly. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. And the rest of verse 9 and 10 describe this king and explain why this coming gives us cause for great joy. For if we understand who this king is and what his coming will mean for all the earth, we will rejoice at the news of his coming. So this morning I asked the question, why look at an Old Testament passage like this one 
that marks the beginning of a holy week, perhaps the most important time on the Christian calendar. And again, we think about what happened 2,500 years ago when Zechariah wrote this and ask ourselves that same question, how does this affect me? This text is one of the most messianic, uh, messianically significant passages in all of the Bible. The New Testament frequently will cite uh, Old Testament passages to support the claim that Jesus is who he said he was, the promised Messiah. But what's interesting about Zechariah 9 is that it is one of those several citations in the Old Testament that are actual predictions in their original context written approximately 500 years before the coming of Christ. Now, there are prophetic types and shadows all throughout the Old Testament pointing to Jesus. There are tabernacles and the feasts to the offerings and the high priest who in one way or another point to Christ and the Messiah who was to come. But Zechariah 9 is one of over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament. One of over 300 prophecies concerning Jesus. Most can be found in the book of Isaiah, but you'll find eight very specific ones, very specific messianic prophecies in the brief 14 chapters of Zechariah. There's a writer named Peter Stoner. You may have heard of him. He was a writer in the mid 20th century, uh, a Christian writer, and he was a, a chairman of mathematics and astronomy in a, uh, in a, um, uh, in a junior college uh, in Southern California in the 1950s. And he wrote a book called Science Speaks to show how Bible prophecy proved that Jesus was truly God in the flesh. He says this, uh, he calculated the possibility of just eight messianic prophecies being fulfilled in the life of Jesus uh, as one in 10 to the 17th power. Having eight prophecies uh, fulfilled in one person, in the person of Jesus, uh, the likelihood of that being one in 10 to the 17th power. That's, again, for, for mathematicians out there, it's one uh, with 17 zeros, okay? I know um, that's my expertise in math. <laughs> and here's, here's where I'm going to get it totally wrong, but I think it's one quadrillion. I'm making that up. So I, I, <clears throat> I think I am. But uh, Stoner provides this illustration of a staggering number of, uh, he says, he gives us an illustration of, of uh, silver dollars spread across the, the state of Texas two feet deep. And he says, a blindfolded man, uh, mark one silver dollar with an X on it, blindfold this man and have him find it. He says that that's the chance of, of finding that silver dollar, that silver coin in Texas, one in 10 to the 17th power. Now, again, when you think about all this, uh, again, you, your chances would be better playing the lottery in California. Uh, I know Pastor Brad briefly mentioned uh, me dropping trays like rain last Sunday. Uh, as much as that might be true, uh, I possess some mad math skills as well. But in all seriousness, uh, I share this with you to look at the profundity of Scripture. Again, you see this beautiful book of over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament. Now, I mentioned to you uh, Stoner's calculations of, of eight of those prophecies coming true. 
And uh, Stoner says if there are a hundred prophecies in the Old Testament, or perhaps, uh, as scholars might say, over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament concerning Jesus, uh, you see this profound uh, weaving of this beautiful gospel story in the Old and New Testament. This beautiful story that begins with with Jesus and God creating all things and, and a humanity falling and and Jesus coming to the rescue and, and dying for the sins of a fallen humanity. This beautiful story that isn't just a, a 66 different parts or, or two different parts of Old Testament and New Testament. But it's one beautifully woven story that shares, us, shares with us this, this gospel story. This beautiful story that, that, that has been written from ages past to tell us that there's a God who loves us and has a plan for our salvation. It's a beautiful story, one beautiful story. The Bible is comprised of many books written by various authors, and we think perhaps as many as 40 different authors written over a 1,500-year span, all sharing this one single message. You know, it's not like the Star Wars series where you can just kind of add on to it, you know, and every year add a new series or add a, a different backstory to each of the characters. These are written in a matter of 1,500 years and in different locations and, and different genres, all sharing with us the exact same story. Because if you did look through every book of the Old Testament, all 39 books, you'll find this, this beautiful pointing to Jesus. One beautiful story, this unified revelation unveiling a single message. And by the time we get to the New Testament, just like that, in fulfillment of Scripture, Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. Today begins an eight-day journey that starts with Palm Sunday and ends with Easter Sunday, two great events that bracket Holy Week the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday and the resurrection of Jesus on Easter Sunday. And without controversy, it is truly a holy week because it encompasses the most sacred events of the Christian faith. All the things that we hold most dear were proved to be true during this week in Jerusalem. As a fulfillment of prophecy, that which was foretold by Zechariah, Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. But let me pause here for a second to insert Two facts, again, about the gospel message or the gospel story that we find in the gospels. I pause to insert two facts. Again, one is that the story of the triumphal entry is repeated. Again, it's that significant that, again, every gospel writer, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all share this story. The fact is noteworthy because it tells us something critical is about to happen. Number two, there's a disproportionate amount of time that each of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, spend on this last week of Jesus' life on earth. Now, just think about this. Half, 50% of the book of John is dedicated to this last week of Jesus' life. Jesus lived 33-something odd years. He did ministry over a three or three-and-a-half-year period. And yet, 50% of his book is spent on this last week, the Holy Week. 
40% of the Gospel of Mark, 33% of the book of Matthew, 25% of the book of Luke, all focus on this last week of Jesus' life. It's Passover time, and Jews from all over the world were coming and crowding into Jerusalem. News had gone out that Jesus was on his way, passing through the towns of Bethphage and, and Bethany. And again, writers of the Gospels are not trying to give you a biography of Jesus, but, but the Gospel. Here's Jesus' life and what he did and what he does. And it's noteworthy because, again, this, our text this morning uh, it reminds us of of uh, the gospel story that we know a little bit better of Jesus coming into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. And be, be sure of this, that each of the gospel writers knew and had Zechariah 9.9 in mind when they tell their story. Our text this morning tells us and begins with the word rejoice. It says that there is to be great excitement and great joy Accompanied by great rejoicing and shouting at the coming of his king. But why? Israel has certainly seen many kings come and many kings go, but why rejoice over another king? Because, my friends, this king would be different than all those that ever preceded him. Zechariah tells us of these differences and in doing so provides us with Three reasons to rejoice over this king. Let me just give you the outline real quick. Number one, when you read through this section, you'll realize that he is a righteous king. Number two, it tells us that he is a saving king. And number three, it tells us that he is a humble, and I might add a loving king. Zechariah says to us, behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous is he. The word righteous here is the word just or, or lawful. It's the word which is the opposite of wicked or corrupt or evil. Again, he was not just speaking of a comparative righteousness that I talked about two weeks ago, that we compare ourselves with with others, and as long as I can compare myself with others and I find myself more righteous than they, then I must be righteous. Many kings have been comparatively righteous, especially when compared to the very wicked kings of Israel. You can think about King David, who was righteous, and we talked about him for eight weeks, how comparatively, yes, he was better than King Saul, but not by much. <laughs> no, Zechariah is not talking about a comparative righteous, but righteousness, but he's referring to a true righteousness with which uh, this, this king would possess, a righteousness worth rejoicing over. He is a king who administers justice in his kingdom. He is not corrupt like so many world leaders. Sadly, we're reminded of those places of authority who have abused their power or have led corruptly or those who lack integrity to do what's right. And yet this king will be just in the administration of his kingdom because he's righteous. He's not out to take advantage of his subjects for personal gain, he has their best interests at heart. The Bible tells us he is a righteous one, that there is no one righteous except for him. Paul will reiterate that. Again, Paul, the the New Testament writer of, of many of the epistles that we read, says that there's no one righteous, not even one. 
And even Jesus says, can anyone be called good? Referring probably, probably uh, perhaps to himself, that only God is good, and that since he is God, that he is good. The Bible also tells us again, as we read Zechariah 9, that he's a, a saving king for the Jews, and salvation that Messiah would bring had national political overtones. For centuries, the Jews had been threatened by hostile nations that have sought to to enslave them or destroy them. So when God promised them a deliverer, they thought of one who would reign on David's throne and bring salvation from all their enemies. Let me pause right there real quickly, and I think this needs to be said, but I think there are two wrong notions that I think will keep people out of heaven. Let's pause right there for a second and just talk about this saving king and talk about these wrong notions that perhaps those uh, who think they might, might not. First, people wrongly believe that God is too loving to send decent, moral people to hell. Well, my friends, I think that kind of thinking grossly underestimates the gravity of our sin. A single sin in thought, word, or deed is enough to condemn a person, and it compromises God's justice in favor of his love, which compromises his holiness, and we talked about that a couple weeks ago. But a God that we believe is a holy God, and we're, we're sure of that, the God that we have does not sin. He does not know what sin is. He's never committed a sin, and nor has Jesus, and, and Paul is accurate to describe that, that, that he knew no sin. The wrong notion that so many of us have is that, that God can't be that evil, that God can't be that unloving, that God is too loving to send decent, uh, well-behaving people to hell. The Bible that I read doesn't tell me that. The second wrong notion that most of us that many of us have is that most of us are, uh, again, if, the, if God is and cannot send people to, uh, can, cannot send moral people to hell, then certainly uh, the second one, I think, is, is closely tied together to that very thought that most of us, we think, are good enough to qualify for heaven. Yes, sure, we all have our faults. Yes, we're not murderers. We're not terrorists. I, I have a few other things I wanted to say. I'm going to just stop right there. Ooh, I might get in trouble when I say some of these things. So we figure that, uh, again, the scales will tip in our favor when we stand before God because we are sincere and we meant well. Many Jews, the people of Israel, made the same mistake. They thought that since they were the descendants of Abraham or because they observed the rituals, the ritual law as prescribed by Moses, or they were better than the Gentiles, that God would not judge them but their error is that God requires a perfect righteousness. A perfect righteousness to get to heaven. In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, Peter says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. If I can say that our God is holy, 
then I also believe that he's loving as well. And if I say that God is loving and gracious and slow to anger and abundant in mercy, then I also believe that our God is holy and perfect and righteous. That's the beauty of the God that we have is that he's a, a righteous king, but he's a king who comes to save. He finds no other way for us, and so he provides a way. He finds that we have no other option, but he provides Christ as our, our option, that anyone, anyone who calls upon the name of Jesus might be saved, that anyone who utters the name of Jesus and, and come under that name, Jesus Christ, might be saved. And again, we use that word quite a bit, that word saved. And again, we ask the question, what does it mean to be saved? Well, that's where Christ and the cross comes in. On the cross, a perfect son of God offered himself as a substitute for sinners like you and me. He comes to give his life as a ransom for many that we might be saved. Christ saves us not by only taking the penalty of our sins, but by crediting us with his righteousness. And we've been talking about this exchange that we bring before God, Lord, I'm imperfect. Lord, I'm a sinner. I'm in need of your grace. And, and God exchanges our sin and places them on the cross and gives us instead his righteousness. His perfect righteousness is what makes him uniquely qualified to be our Savior. He is a righteous king. He is a saving king. And the text tells us here that he is also a, a humble king. In ancient times, when a king rode into a city, he did it uh, as a show of power and wealth on a horse, on a stallion. So one might expect Jesus to enter Jerusalem at the, at the head of a mighty army, bearing dazzling prizes for his royal treasury, uh, riding a white stallion into Jerusalem. But Jesus comes to meet and greet his subjects, not with pomp and circumstance, not with much fanfare, but with humility and meekness. The king's gentleness is symbolized by his mode of transportation. He's riding on a donkey. At the very least, one would expect Jesus to ride a horse, but instead of coming on a mighty horse, a mighty war horse, a proud stallion, he rides on a lowly beast of burden, riding on a donkey of all creatures and a borrowed donkey at that. My friends, the king's gentleness is not a sign of weakness. For you and I know that no false Messiah has ever copied Jesus in taking the lowly place of a servant. But our Savior commanded us to follow him in this regard. He took the towel, he took a towel and a basin and washed the feet of his disciples. He is a righteous king. He is a saving king, and he is a gentle king. Another indication of the gentleness of Christ is the relationship that Jesus has with his disciples. You read that section in Zechariah 9, 9. He uses the image of family and relationships. 
Zechariah's prophecy begins, rejoice greatly. And what does he say? O daughter of Zion. O daughter of Jerusalem. The word daughter is a reminder that God regards his people as his own beloved children. The Old Testament often uses this kind of family language that Israel is my firstborn son. Say to the daughter of Zion, your Savior comes. God's love for his people is like the love a good father has for his own sons and daughters. Those who are his family, those who are his children. That's the gentleness of our Savior who comes riding on a donkey to remind us of his love, his humility, his meekness, and his grace towards us. And that while we were yet sinners, that he would die for us. 